on July 4th, 1839, John Jasper celebrated freedom. Not freedom from England's rule, as the rest of the country was celebrating on Independence Day. Nor was he celebrating freedom from slavery. He was still serving as a slave as he'd been since birth on a plantation in Richmond, Virginia. But it was on that day that John Jasper was freed from slavery to sin. When God convicted him of his sin and granted him salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. Jasper recorded saying it was the most holy day, the most happy day. Can I ever forget it? That was my conversion morning. And that day, the Lord sent me out with the good news of the kingdom. From that day, Jasper widely became regarded as one of the most popular and powerful slave preachers. Preaching that even while in bonds, people could have spiritual freedom. Preaching to people who were deeply suffering, but trying to lead them away from a worse suffering and point them to a future hope. Jasper knew that beyond this life was another life where worse or better realities existed. And he labored to prepare people for those realities. You can hear that sentiment in, in a dual sermon that Jasper preached one day for both an unbelieving man, William Ellison, and a believing woman, Mary Barnes. He said, let me say a word about this William Ellison. He was no good man. He didn't say he was. He didn't try to be good, and they tell me he died as he lived, without God and without hope in this world. It's a bad tale to tell, but he fixed the story himself. If you want folks who live wrong to be preached and sung to glory, don't bring them to Jasper. May God comfort the mournful and warn the unruly. But, my brethren, Mary Barnes was different. She was washed in the blood of the Lamb and, and washed in white robes. Her religion was of God. You could trust Mary anywhere. You never caught her in the playhouses. She was never frisking in them dances. She wasn't no street walker traipsing at night. She loved the house of the Lord. Her, her feet clung to the straight and narrow path. I, I know her. I, I seen her at the preaching and seen her tending the sick and helping the mourning sinners. Our sister Mary, goodbye. Your race is run, but your crown is sure. How could two people who died have such different words said about them? How could two people who died have such different destinies? That's something what we'll hear this morning from another preacher in our passage in Matthew's Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 25? And this morning we'll look at verses 31 through 46 together. 
Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 26. We read, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, with the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you a drink? And when do we send you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When do we send you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment. The righteous into eternal life. Amen. I've titled this sermon, A Solemn Separation. Not simply because I like alliterative titles, but because I think you see that clearly in the text. There will be a separation in the last day that will have grave or solemn consequences. It's texts like this that inform statements like what we have in the last statement in our statement of faith. In the 18th and last article of our statement of faith, it speaks of the world to come. And we read that we believe that the end of the world is approaching, that at the last day, Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution, that a solemn separation will then take place that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment and the righteous to endless joy. Amen. And that this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. Mm. I think we see that in our passage. And again, passages like this inform what we believe as a church. So here's, I think, is the main idea of Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. The main idea of the sermon this morning. Jesus is coming to separate the righteous from the wretched. And part of his criteria is the care of his people. Jesus is coming to separate the righteous from the wretched. 
And part of his criteria is the care for his people. As we walk through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts around the three central truths we see in this text. So three points to the sermon. Number one, Jesus is coming in his glory to judge. We see that in verses 31 through 33. Number two, allegiance to Jesus will be rewarded. We see that in verses 34 through 40. Third and lastly, rejection of Jesus will be punished. We see that in verses 41 through 46. Number one, Jesus is coming in his glory to judge. Uh, number two, uh, allegiance to Jesus will be rewarded. And number three, rejection of Jesus will be punished. First point, Jesus is coming in his glory to judge. As a refresher, Jesus is speaking in this passage. He's been speaking since the beginning of chapter 24 in what's been called the, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives giving this talk, saying these words. As we've previously discussed, uh, it's one of five discourses, five speeches, five sermons that Jesus gives and that the disciple Matthew, who wrote this book, highlights. He organizes this book around these five sermons of Jesus. Now, I, th I think that's significant because often we get enamored by all the miraculous things that Jesus did. But Matthew says, don't miss what Jesus has to say. This is the fifth and final discourse that Jesus gives in this book. And in this last sermon, his subject matter is future judgment at his hands. Well, look again at verses 31 through 33. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. If Jesus were Jesus, we'd probably be annoyed by how often he speaks in the third person. You see, when he talks about the Son of Man there at the beginning of verse 31, he's talking about himself. It's one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. But what does the term mean? It's not simply stating that Jesus, who along with being 100% divine, also is 100% human. That he was both the son of God and the son of a man. Uh, that, that's, that's true in some ways, but right, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, that he has a, a divine and a human nature, but, but that's not specifically what the title son of man means. The title son of man finds its roots in the Old Testament book of Daniel, where in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14 we read the prophet Daniel saying I saw one like a son of man yes. and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him the, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and all languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. The Son of Man is a divine being 
who has glory and dominion and a kingdom and who shall rule forever. When Jesus Christ, speaking 600 years after the book of Daniel was written, calls himself the son of man, he's not just saying I'm a son of a man or a woman like everybody else. No, he's saying, I am the son of man that Daniel prophesied about. The divine dominion possessing judge of all the world. You can see and feel the weight of all of Jesus' words here then. This is not some madman musing about some mystical future. This is not some passionate preacher postulating about potential privileges or punishments simply to get you to pay attention to him. This is God the Son himself telling you about himself and what he's coming back to do. To judge. Notice the, the certainty of it. The beginning of verse 31 says, when the Son of Man comes. It's not an if, but a when. No one knows when, but the when will happen. Yes, the cross is coming in just a few days, but the resurrection and return is surely coming after that. Amen. And notice the difference with this second coming from Jesus' first coming. When Jesus came from heaven to earth the first time, he came in humility. He came as a helpless babe. He was born in a stable. He spent his early months and years on the run from wretched rulers. But when he returns, when he comes back, he is coming in all his glory. The glory as of the only son of God, an intrinsic glory that belongs to God. And he will sit on his glorious throne as king of all the earth and he will rule. In his first coming, he subjected himself to the shame and indignity of death on a cross for us separated from the rest of respectable society to die a despicable death reserved for criminals. But he is coming back in all the splendor and majesty do him, crowned with all authority. And he will separate people from one another. Verse 32 says that before him, all the nations, all the peoples, Everybody will be gathered before him, young and old, black and white, right, short and tall. Everybody will stand before the Lord. He will summon all the earth to his courtroom where he presides as judge. But while everybody is called to come together, everybody won't stay together. Jesus' throne won't be covered with coexist stickers. Jesus' agenda won't be all about inclusivity. No, Jesus Christ will separate people. He will divide them. As much as the world says everyone will coexist, the Christ says they will not. No, he will separate people. He will divide them just as a shepherd does with sheep and goats. Now, none of us know what shepherds do with sheep or goats. None, none of us have that agrarian background. But back then, right, sheep and goats would be separated at night. That's as much as I know about it, right? <laughs> they knew much more about it. It's a metaphor, though, of what Jesus is going to do to people at the last times. Verse 33 says he will put the sheep on the right. All throughout the Bible, you, you read that the right, right yeah. is a place of prominence and honor. It's why Jesus Christ himself is said to sit at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. 
The sheep is a metaphor representing the true followers of Jesus. Those who were trusted in him as their good shepherd and who listen to and live by his voice. And he will put the goats, the ones who are not followers of King Jesus, he will put the goats on the left. The place of dishonor, place of shame and rejection. Jesus is meaning to teach us, to prepare us for what's ahead. A day is coming where everybody will stand before him to be judged. Which should lead us to prepare now. I mean, that's been the main thrust of Jesus' teaching in these past two chapters. The end is coming where the king will judge, so you need to be ready. Amen. Now, what's that mean for us? Well, for one, as a church... It means that we work hard to try to have clear lines now so that you don't find yourself on the wrong side of the line later. All right. That's why we mean to take something like membership at Temple Hills Baptist Church very seriously. So that goats don't think they're sheep. All right. And to keep sheep from straying to be goats. That's why we use things like a statement of faith where we confess certain beliefs about God and about sin. The sin that separates us from a good and holy God. About Jesus Christ and what he's done to, to save sinners like us from God's wrath. This is why our statement of faith talks about what we just read earlier. Jesus' return to judge us. That's why we call everybody who wants to be a member at this local church to agree to every single one of the 18 articles in our statement of faith. We want people to believe what the Bible says we must believe and to live like it. Amen. And that's why we practice church discipline. When there are members who are living outside the bounds of the Bible in unrepentant sin. We don't want people to think that they're really Christians when there's no evidence and no fruit of it in their lives. We don't want people to bank solely that their name is on the roll of Temple Hills Baptist Church as the basis of their acceptance before the Lamb of God in the coming judgment day. Friends, that's why we don't baptize very young children. Kids, we love you very deeply. We want you all to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. But we believe that baptism is to be given to believers upon a credible profession of faith. Amen. There's no hard age for that. The Bible doesn't say it's 10 or 12 or 8 or 18. The Bible doesn't say there's no hard age for that, but it does take some time to see it develop. Yeah. Right? And so we're willing to, to risk waiting a while rather than to prematurely give you the sign that you belong to the new covenant community only for you later to live like you belong to the world. Mm. Then when Jesus returns to find yourself on the outside of the covenant community. We want to be serious about membership here because Jesus calls us to protect the purity of the church. But says we will not do that perfectly because none of us is perfect. We can err in our judgment and you can trick the body of believers here into thinking you're a genuine Christian, even if you are not. Mm. But, but friends, I hope a passage like this warns you that you can't fool Jesus. All right. Amen. You might be able to blend in here with other believers doing the same things, saying you believe the same things, but, but, but you, you know in your heart of hearts that you don't really believe. 
You you know behind closed doors what you really say and how you really live. Mm. Friends, when Jesus returns, he will see right through you, down to the core of you, and he will separate you from his true own. He is coming in his glory to, to judge. I hope this passage warns you, but I also hope it wakes you out of your hypocrisy. Stop trying to fool people because you can't fool Jesus. All right. I pray you instead, instead confess who you really are to Jesus. He knows. And the amazing thing is that unlike when we confess things to folks, to folks on this world, right, to family members or friends, when you confess to Jesus, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Stop wearing a mask of religion if you're not truly devoted to the Lord. Take off the mask. Show Christ who you truly are so he can truly work on you as you are. And that he might, as he tells us in his word, present us holy and blameless before the Lord in the coming judgment. You see, I pray that you would trust in Jesus so you can truly be welcomed into his eternal kingdom. Because it's only true allegiance to Jesus that will one day be rewarded. Now, that's the second point we, we see in this passage, that allegiance to Jesus will be rewarded. In the rest of, of chapter 25, we read what criteria Jesus will one day use to judge us. And in verses 34 through 40 particularly, he, he starts with those who receive his commendation, who are welcomed into his kingdom. Verse 34 says, Jesus, the king, the one who's returning to rule on his throne, will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And notice here the, the designation of these people. They are those who've been blessed by Jesus, his Father, by God, the Father. Amen. Yes, Jesus is the divine Son of Man. He is God. But notice how the Bible is clear that that does not diminish Trinitarian distinctions. Mm. There is one God, but he eternally exists in three persons as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. That these sheep, these true believers on the right, at the place of honor, are designated as being blessed by the Father, shows something of God's prerogative and power in them being placed in the position that they're in. And I think that's important. Because in the minute, we'll see Jesus notes some actions that these believers did that if we're not careful, we can read as if they're the cause for their acceptance on the last day. Now, we read here first that they are blessed by God. They enjoy his good favor. They are recipients of his grace. Their works then follow and flow from God's favor. I mean, you see that as you just keep reading as Jesus tells them to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. Their entrance into God's kingdom is not worked for. You don't work for an inheritance, you receive it. Amen. And it's been prepared for them from before the foundation of the earth. Before the earth was formed, before their little bodies were formed, before they did a single action. This is election language, language of being blessed by God and chosen from before the foundation of 
the earth. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. God in his sovereign power and the freedom of his will chooses some to save and to bring into his eternal kingdom. God has always had a plan. And amazingly, that plan has involved having people included in it to share with God and his heavenly joy forever. Now, some people lament that something like election is unfair. The idea of God choosing to save some. But where is the injustice? For all deserve to be eternally judged for our sins against an eternally good and holy God. Amen. But of his own free mercy, God predestined to save some, not just from one sect or one race or one class of people, but from among all nations and all tribes and all languages to inherit his eternal kingdom through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, who loved us and who gave himself for us. And those who belong to him will love him and give their lives to him. Amen. Now, what does that look like? Well, Jesus explains in verses 35 and 36. Why will these on the right be welcomed into the kingdom? Because they genuinely love and care for the king. And it's been shown through their actions. Jesus says, but I was hungry. And you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me, sick and you visited me and in prison and you, you came to me. It's striking here how unstriking these actions are. I mean, Jesus isn't commending casting out demons mm. or speaking in tongues. You know, things that, that, that seem to show real spiritual vibrancy and, and power. Jesus doesn't recite statistics. You baptized 400 people. You started 300 churches. That's what, what really catches people's attention, but not Jesus's. Jesus doesn't, doesn't point to gifting. You've delivered eloquent sermons. You showcased amazing skills. No, Jesus points to service. Serving every day physical needs of himself. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. Come into my kingdom because you took care of the king. You demonstrated that you love me. And notice the people's response in verse 37. The righteous say, Jesus, we love you, but you're tripping. What are you talking about? When did we see you hungry and feed you? We've never even seen you face to face. What are you, what are you talking about? When did we see you as stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? I think the response again just, just goes against any reading of this passage 
that views salvation, that views entrance into God's kingdom as happening by doing good works. I mean, the righteous here are presented as not even being aware that their works were noticed. They, they weren't working for Jesus to earn his favor. They questioned even Jesus saying that they served him specifically. What? How? When? No, they simply lived out of love for Christ as genuine Christians showing love to other Christians. Yeah. Yeah. Let's look at Jesus' reply to their question in verse 40. When did you feed and clothe and care for me? Verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, many people have taken this text to say that you serve Jesus by serving the poor, by serving the marginalized, by serving the neglected, the, the least of these in the world. If you want to be a genuine Christian, if you want to be a genuine church, if you want to be commended by Christ and welcomed into his kingdom, you have to care for and provide for those who most need help. Now, friends, that's... That's a wonderful instinct to care for those who are in need, to recognize that every single human being, no matter what station they are in life, is created in the image of God and so is worthy of, of dignity and respect and attention. And, and so to show compassion to people in need is just a good reflection of the God who is compassionate and who is kind. I mean, we saw that in the passage that Stephanie read for us earlier. But is this passage, the one we're studying this morning, and verse 40 in particular, a charge for Christians and churches to center their lives around providing for and alleviating human need wherever they see it, to make that their primary mission? Well, no. No. Well, the text says, you, you might say, if you cared for the least of these, for people in need, then Jesus considers that you've done it for him. Well, yes, the text does say that, but the question is, who are the least of these? Mm -hmm. Well, let's read closely exactly what the text says. Jesus says, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus is talking primarily about serving other Christians, Amen. his spiritual brothers and sisters. And that's in line with what we've already seen in this book. Back at the end of chapter 12, somebody told Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside wanting to talk to you. Jesus was wondering, who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching got his hand toward his disciples. He said, here are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother or sister and mother. Amen. Who are Jesus' brothers and sisters? His disciples. Amen. People who follow him and do the father's will. Christians. And Jesus tells us here in verse 40 that how you treat his people is a reflection of how you treat him. You see, Jesus closely identifies himself with his people. Amen. It's similar to what, what we read in Acts chapter 9. 
when Jesus appeared to Saul on the Damascus Road as Saul was on a rampage of killing Christians. And Jesus asked, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Amen. You see, to go against Christians is to go against Jesus Christ. And to support and care for and love Christians is to love the Jesus that Christians serve. Amen. The Jesus that Christians represent. These actions that Jesus commends in this passage. Providing food and clothing and shelter would have been desperately needed for Jesus' followers in the first century especially those who traveled to make him known. They were hated by the world and relied on the kindness of fellow Christians to do their work. Receiving them then, caring for them, was a sign of receiving the Christ that they testified about. And again, looking back in this book, again, you want to know how terms are, are, are to be understood. The first place you look is in the text itself, right, right in front of you, and then broadly, in the same book where that author uses the same terms, right? So, so we want to understand how Matthew has presented these things. Looking back in this book, Matthew gives us the kind of understanding that we just talked about. To receive Jesus' people is to receive Jesus himself. In chapter 10, Jesus is giving another sermon. It's his second discourse where he talks about sending his disciples out on mission. And he says in, in verses 40 through 42, Whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The, the one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And listen to this. Whoever gives one of these little ones, the least of these, even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, Truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Amen. 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 Rewards are offered to those who show their allegiance to and love for Jesus by providing for Jesus' people. That's what Jesus is commending in our passage and calling us to. Friends, do not get me wrong here. Don't mishear me. This does not mean that we should be hard-hearted to non-Christians in need. That we should turn a cold shoulder to, to people who are suffering. No, we can and should care. But our primary task isn't to provide for all people everywhere in need. I know that might sound hard or harsh, but actually I think it's freeing. Because the needs of the world are massive. Yeah, yeah. And we simply cannot meet all of them. A church that makes that their main mission will quickly find itself depleted of much time and much resources and many people. What we can do is meet whatever needs we can meet. Amen. And to pray for those in need. Prayer is powerful. What we can do is point them to other resources. Praise the God for civil government Amen. that has programs and money that we don't have. Amen. What we can do is then prioritize addressing the greatest need that everybody has mm. and that we actually do have the resources to meet. Mm. You see, the greatest need is not physical but spiritual. Amen. 
The greatest problem is that everyone is born with a sinful nature and every single person who ever lives acts out of that sinful nature in hell-bound rebellion against a good and a holy God and deserves his hot wrath. But we, who ain't got no money, who ain't got a, but a little bit of people, we have the solution to the world's greatest problem. Amen. Amen. And we get to offer that solution, which is the message of the gospel. Amen. That though you are dead in your sins and headed to hell, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son Amen. to live the perfect life that you and I should have lived. To lay down his life and to eat all the sins of all those who rebelled against God for all their lives through thought and deed and word and speech. Through everything they did, Jesus said, I'll take it all. And he died on the cross for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him. Yes. Jesus died for us. He ate all God's wrath. We're going to see that in a couple of chapters when you read the, the story of the cross. The physical suffering was horrible, but the spiritual suffering was worse. On the cross, Jesus drank the cup of hell for us. He endured all of God's wrath for us so that there's none left for any of us beyond the cross. All right. So that whoever turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus, who got up from the grave after he died, will have everlasting life will be alleviated, will be relieved from, will be rescued from the worst suffering, a far worse suffering than anything they can have here, a suffering of eternity in hell. Mm. And can have the greatest thing they need, salvation from God. Amen. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, then the greatest act of mercy that we can offer you this morning is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. Don't leave here without it. Come talk to me after service. Talk to anyone around you. We love to tell you more about the wonderful, merciful Savior, Jesus Christ. To be saved by Jesus is the greatest act of mercy. And it frees us to show that same kind of mercy to others. Especially other Jesus followers whom Jesus puts us with in the same spiritual family. As church members then, what should characterize our lives is the kind of Matthew 25, 35, and 36 care for each other. Laying down our lives for each other's needs and thus demonstrating our love for the Lord. 1 John 4 along with the, the song we sang earlier, summarizes it well. I mean, how can I say that I love the Lord, hmm. whom I've never, ever seen before, hmm. and forget to say that I love the one who I walk beside each and every day? Hmm. How can I look upon your face and ignore God's love? No, you I must embrace. You're my brother. You're my sister. And I love you with the love of it's never about simply what our lips say about our relationship with Jesus. What do our lives say? You cannot say you love the Lord if you do not love the Lord's people. A love for brother and sister in Christ is a love for Christ and will be rewarded. Come, Jesus will tell us at that last day, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Mm. 
Those things I pray that encourages you. As you strive by God's grace to keep the commitments that we agreed to keep in our church covenant, I pray it encourages you not to be self-centered, but others-oriented in your Christian life. Part of the essence of what it means to be a Christian is to care for other Christians. Now, that can mean providing for the financial needs of missionaries or church planters who've gone out for the sake of the gospel. That can mean providing for the financial and physical needs of members here in our local body. Saints, that can mean giving your time to provide the ministry of presence in other people's lives. Don't minimize, underestimate the enormous impact of the ministry of presence that you can give. I mean, notice here, Jesus said, I was in prison and you visited me. I was sick and you came to me. Friends, likewise, we're called to draw near to, to other Christians when they are in some of the darkest times of their lives, hmm. times of loneliness and despair. It might be physical prisons or it might be the mental prison of depression that has locked them into darkness. It's bad thoughts for long times. They, they might not feel like coming out to church, but you can go to them maybe. My friends, might mean you moving towards folks, even as they might seem to stiff arm you and move away. It means when problems happen in, in people's parenting, when explosions happen in people's marriages, when people have endured miscarriages, when they're suffering, suffering with mental illness or when they're sick and in the hospital, we do not dismiss each other while we're in the pits of life. We don't dismiss those who seem to stay stuck in the pits. No, we're to be present with one another, providing for each other, serving the needs of the least of these, Christ's brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters. To the world, that's a wasted life. The world tells us that what's in your wallet is yours to keep. The world tells us that your weekends and your free time are yours to enjoy. The world tells us that our peace of mind is too valuable to get involved in other people's mess and worry about other people's problems. The world tells us to live for ourselves. The Bible tells us to live for the Lord Jesus and to love him. And that part of living for and loving the Lord Jesus is loving his people and living for them with the sweet promise that whatever it costs you in this life to be united to Jesus and his people, that that allegiance to Jesus will be rewarded. But rejection of Jesus will be punished. Third and finally, we see in this text, rejection of Jesus will be punished. In verses 41 through 46, we see Jesus turn from the righteous sheep on his right to the unrighteous goats on his left, to the unbelievers on his left side, the side of dishonor and, and shame. And notice the contrast in their designation and destination from the sheep. To the sheep up in verse 34, 
Jesus designated them as blessed. To the goats in verse 41, Jesus designates them cursed. To the sheep in verse 34, Jesus welcomes them to their new destination. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the goats in verse 41, Jesus cast them away, sending them to their new destination. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There could not be a more drastic difference between these two groups. It shows the wide chasm that exists between believers and unbelievers, between Christians and non-Christians. And notice the, again the acts that contribute to Jesus' verdict of these people. Or better, the lack of acts that have contributed to their being cast away. Jesus says in verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. A stranger, and you didn't welcome me. Naked, and you didn't clothe me. In prison, and you didn't think to visit me. They failed to do any of the things that the righteous did, which earns Jesus' judgment. I think it just shows us that it's not just sins of commission that we will be judged for. Things that we've actively done contrary to God's will. But it's also sins of omission that we will be judged for. Things that we should have done, but failed to do. And again, just like the first group, this second group is shocked. In verse 44, they say, what? When did we see you, how you describe? Naked and sick and in prison, and we didn't provide for you. I mean, if we would have seen you, the king, in need, surely we would have helped. I mean, that's, that's how many of us are, aren't we? Our level of willingness to serve increases based on the respectability of the one we might serve. Based on what we think we might be able to get out of the deal. I mean, it's similar to what we saw when we were studying the book of James. A man in fine clothing comes into the assembly and people flock to see how they might serve him. Well, somebody come in with shabby clothes and they pay him no attention. It's, it's sort of like the thing you, you see on that reality show, Undercover Boss, where, where the owner of a company disguises himself as a nobody and goes to his business as a customer, and what often happens is that he gets overlooked and neglected. Now, if the employees knew that he was the owner, they'd be bending over backwards to serve him. But because he looks like a nobody, they treat him like a nobody. But Jesus here says they treated his people as nobodies. They didn't serve and care for them that is how they showed a lack of care and love for him. Yeah, if King Jesus came with all his regalia as he will in his second coming, if he came like that, yeah, you would have been bitten over backwards. But you failed to see that these little shabby believers who look like nobodies, who got this little old church, this little old corner with a, a little old message, you despised and rejected them. You missed that they represented the king of all the earth. He says in verse 45, 
Truly I say to you, as you did not do these things to the least of these, you did not do them to me. You failed to care for my brothers and sisters who looked like nothing but scum, and so you failed to care for me. Why didn't they care for these brothers and sisters of Jesus? I mean, what keeps people from serving the needy in their midst? Well, there's a number of things we can, we can list off, but with just a few. Pride. Pride kills providing for others because you feel superior to them. You look down on others who are needy as if you're better than them. The busyness. The busyness buries others' needs under all the things going on in your life. You're too preoccupied to notice how others might need your help. Indifference. Notices others' needs, but is ultimately unconcerned to do anything about them. Yeah, you're suffering, but so what? Everybody is suffering. Selfishness leads to hoarding stuff for yourself so that you don't want to share or give anything to anybody else. Whether that's time or money or attention, no matter how, no matter how desperate they are. But ultimately, it's lovelessness that lies behind the failure to care, to provide. You see, because love gives. God so loved the world that he gave. John 3.16. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.25. Love sees people in need and gives for their good. The grand mark of that is how God loved us and gave for our need. And our loving response to him is to do the same for others. Amen. But you must love and treasure him and his loving work for you in order to lovingly live for others. These ghosts live like what they were. Unconverted, loveless people. Their hearts had not been transformed by Christ, and so they lived neither for Christ or anyone who came in the name of Christ. They rejected Jesus by rejecting his people, which leads to their ultimate rejection. Lift your eyes back up to verse 41. The time is coming where Jesus will tell all such unbelievers, depart from me into the eternal fire. Their fate is repeated again in verse 46. These people will go away into eternal punishment. Friends, feel the severity of those words. Eternal fire. Eternal punishment. The Bible has no concept of some provisional purgatory. The Bible speaks of no temporary suffering after which you just are annihilated. No, the Bible says that there is everlasting, ever conscious, ongoing, never ending judgment forever at the hand of God. You never move past it. Every day is darker than the previous day. 
Not only do you feel God's active hot wrath against you, you also have the weighted conscience that God told you to come Amen. and you refuse. And now he told you to depart and you can never come. Eternal hell. Eternal punishment. For rejection of God's son, Jesus Christ, and his people. Friends, that is incredibly bad news. It's the worst news that you could ever hear. It is the fate of all those who are enemies of Jesus. There is only one fate for you, and it is hell. But, but. the end of verse 46 gives us some, some help. Here. Mm, mm, mm. But, Thank God that's not the only fate possible. All right. That's not the fate for genuine believers. But, verse 46, the righteous, those declared righteous through faith in Christ shed blood for them. Those who live righteously through the abiding presence of Christ in their spirits, they will go into eternal, never-ending, always ongoing, everlasting life. Amen. The Lord we loved here and the Lord's people we loved here, we will spend eternity with in eternal bliss and joy. The Apostle Paul says, eye has not seen, nor ear has heard what the Lord has in store for his people. Yes. Notice when the Bible talks about heaven, it doesn't talk about God like, all right, I guess I let him on in after, you know, because I'm being gracious. When the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about God so happy to have us with him forever that he's preparing the place for us. Right? He's getting the place ready. He's like the father of the prodigal. That when he tells the son to come and the son comes running, that the father says, bring out the best. Let's prepare the feast. And the feast that the Lord is preparing for us will last forever. Friends, there's no doubt. Sin feels good now. Well, we ain't got to lie about that. Some sin feels good. And some sin brings some happiness. Some sin brings some joy. Some sin brings some pleasure. But friends, all sin will bring some pain forever. And all sin and the temporary pleasure it gives now will pale in comparison to the holy joy yes. that will be ours as we sit among the holy God, enjoying him forever. We won't just be sitting there, you know, with wings on and singing kumbaya at his throne. We're going to be actively loving and living for the Lord without ever thinking about sin again. All right. Amen. Without having any inclination to do wrong. Without desiring it, without having to fight that same thing you keep saying no to now. It's worth saying no to now because you won't have to worry about it later. There will be eternity in heaven. Eternal joy, eternal bliss. Friends, there are only two kinds of people. Sheep and goats. Ain't no middle ground. Jesus don't say when you get 25, then you can become a sheep. In the meantime, you get like a provisional sheep. So young people, don't play around with your youth. Come to the Lord now. Jesus don't say, oh, you've been treated bad now, and so I just accept you as a sheep. No, you must trust in Jesus Christ to be either a sheep 
You keep rejecting him to be a goat. There's only two kinds of people, and there's only two destinies. There's no other kind of middle option. There's either eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. It's the two destinies that John Jasper preached about. Oh, William Ellison, he knew where he was going. Oh, but our sweet sister Mary, she ran the race. John Jasper preached to slaves knowing that they would one day receive a crown. Friends, regardless of what we go through now, all the hardships, all the pains, faithfulness to Jesus will be rewarded. Those who remain close to him will receive a crown. A solemn separation is coming. Where will you be? Jesus wants you to be with him forever. How do I know? Because he keeps telling you in his word about what's coming. So that if you're not ready, you can get ready. So that you can prepare, prepare well for that day by giving your life to Jesus and loving his people now that you might be rewarded later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us so much that you teach us through your word. You don't want us to be blindsided or caught off guard. We thank you that you preach to us. Give us ears to hear, we pray. Open our hearts to believe and to trust Christ as our all-sufficient Savior and to, through love for him, love those you've given us, our brothers and sisters. Widen our hearts, we pray. Strengthen our faith. Help our unbelief. Instruct us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.